is brought to you by the physicians and staff of Nebraska Cancer Specialists. We are grateful for their time and support on this project. Nebraska Cancer Specialists is the largest community oncology practice in the region and their regional leader in cancer diagnosis, treatment, and research. Their physicians are some of the most experienced and highly qualified in the area. Nebraska Cancer Specialists provide considerate, state-of-the-art care for their patients at their five Metro Omaha locations. You didn't choose your diagnosis, but you can choose your care. Experience you can trust. Compassion you can feel. Nebraska Cancer Cancer Specialists, NebraskaCancer.com. Welcome to In the Know with NCS. I'm Kelly Horn, and today we're talking colorectal cancer. In the past podcasts we did on breast cancer and prostate cancer, we assumed our listeners had heard a thing or two about both of those cancers. Colorectal cancer, I'm not sure that we can assume that, even though it is the third most common cancer in both men and women in the United States. Overall, the lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer is about 1 in 22 men and 1 in 24 women. A number of other factors can also affect your risk for developing colorectal cancer. We are here today with Dr. Tim Hike. Dr. Hike is a medical oncologist with Nebraska Cancer Specialist, and he is here today talking to us about what we need to know about colorectal cancer. Welcome, Dr. Hike. Thank you. There's so much out there on cancer. The wonderful world of internet provides a ton of information, both true and false. What is it that we really need to know about colorectal cancer today? Um, Colorectal cancer, I think the first thing that I think of when I talk about colorectal cancer is um, that those are two separate diagnoses. Um, there's an important distinction that needs to be made between colon cancer and between rectal cancer. And for the purposes of today's conversation, I think we'll look at it more globally. But first and foremost, under, I want the listeners to understand that, that there's a distinction between colon cancer and rectal cancer. And, and that distinction um, um, affects the treatment um, and particularly affects the surgical management um, and, the, and whether or not radiation will be used. Um, the other um, statement that I want to make very clear to the people who are listening today is that if colon cancer is found early enough, it's potentially curable. Um, and that speaks to the importance of screening. Um, I think the, it's becoming more freak, more common knowledge that um, that people should get screening colonoscopies, and generally speaking, that is that begins at the age of fifty. Um, and and you know, I'm a person, I'm a human being. I understand that having a colonoscopy isn't the number one thing I want to do on my um, to do list. But um, I see patients who die of stage four colon cancer. Um, and when you see that, you understand that, um, having a bad day and getting a colonoscopy is different than having a bad day and getting diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, colon cancer is curable if it's found soon enough. Um, and you'll hear me say this time and again throughout this interview, but, um, colon cancer screening is, is something that needs to continue to be highlighted the way, um, mammograms have been highlighted, the way dermatologic evaluation has been highlighted, the way prostate cancer screening has been highlighted. Um, if we find colon cancer soon enough, it is um, um, a bump in the road on life um, and not a, a dead end on life. Um, so, so needing to continue to highlight the importance of, of colon cancer screening is a, um, a very important aspect of today's discussion. Absolutely. We hear when caught early, colon cancer is treatable today, more so than it has been in the past, and you have touched on that. 
We'll go into treatments and trials later in the podcast, but for right now, let's start with some of the risk factors. What factors may increase our risk of colorectal cancer? Sure. So when you talk about um, colon cancer screening or rectal cancer screening, um, the the average risk population is generally considered to be 50 years. Um, and average risk implies that they have no significant risk factors associated for colon cancer. Um, so what are some of those risk factors? Some of those risk factors can include certain types of, of genetic abnormalities, things like um, familial edematous polyposis, Things like hereditary non-polyposis syndrome, um, which is commonly referred to as the Lynch syndrome. There's a diagnosis called Piotr-Jaeger's, um, which also can increase your risk of colon cancer. Those are all relatively rare. Um, the more common risk factors include a personal or family history of colon cancer, a personal or family history of edematous polyps um, in, your, in your history. Um, any of those will increase your colon cancer risk. What if someone is asking, why did I get this? Do you think that your patients have a good understanding of their diagnosis, or do you feel like you need to explain this to them? And what do you tell a patient when you first see them? Sure. Um, um, I think even the most educated of people um, struggle with the notion of, of why did I do that? Why did I get this? What what choice, what sin did I commit that, that led to this? Um, and... Frequently, particularly when I see new patients for the first time, I'll I'll talk to them um, and conclude my visit addressing this issue, um, and and I'll tell them, uh, look, one of the most difficult questions I get answered on a regular basis or get asked, excuse me, on a regular basis, is is Doc, what did I do to get this? And most of the time, the answer is we don't know. Um, um, it, and it speaks to how much we still have to learn about cancer and, and about colon cancer. But the vast majority of patients that I see um, who are diagnosed with colon cancer, we cannot identify um, the etiology or the cause of what developed that, that process, um, um, what initiated that process, what, what environmentally or genetically caused that process. Um, and that's a very frequent question that we get asked on a regular basis. Um, I, I see patients across the socioeconomic spectrum, across the educational spectrum. Um, and because of that, the, the level of understanding that all of my patients have varies. Um, I discuss with each and every one of my patients what the diagnosis means. Um, when I first see a patient, the, the first thing that I discuss with them if they have a diagnosis of colon cancer is what kind is it? That's a way of asking what does the cell look like under the microscope. I'll then discuss with them what the stage is. Um, and then following that, we'll discuss what treatment options are available. And, and as with any medical issue, the, the details can be a little bit unnerving, can be a little bit overwhelming. Sure. But I try to make it so that it's understandable to them. And I try to make it so that they understand all of these tests, all of these pathology reports. What are the important aspects of it? Um, and it's very frequent that I'll see a patient for the first time and they'll come in with a list of questions. And most of the time, if I've done my job well, and if I've taken time to communicate with them and educate them, most of those questions don't even end up needing to be asked. Um, because they'll have a much better understanding of, of, of what we're dealing with, um, what, if anything, caused it, and what, more, most importantly, what treatment options we have for it. 
We talked a little bit about this, but I want to know some more information on the hereditary aspect of colorectal cancer. Um, we hear kind of buzzword these days about genetic testing and genetic counseling. Should someone seek out genetic testing for their families if they've been diagnosed or they've had the diagnosis in their family history? Sure. Um when I see patients for the first time with a new diagnosis of colon cancer or rectal cancer, I will discuss with them um, that most of the time there is not a genetic link that we can identify. Um, but I still very frequently encourage a cancer genetic evaluation um, to assure that. Um, obviously, their age at the time of diagnosis plays an important role. Um, uh, is an important factor in determining whether or not um, a formal cancer genetic evaluation is done. Also, whether or not they have family members, um, particularly primary family members, parents, brothers or sisters or children, um, also plays an important role in determining whether a, a cancer genetic evaluation is performed. The stress of a cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming, um, and the the fear that I see in patients' eyes when I meet them for the first time um, is is humbling. Um, and and I always encourage them to to discuss cancer genetics, but I'll often refer to it as a back burner issue, um, just because the the cancer diagnosis itself can be so overwhelming that that it's it's important to focus one thing at a time sometimes. Um, but the, the cancer genetics evaluation is certainly appropriate. The, the details with that are really dependent upon family history, age of diagnosis, and then a secondary issue is whether or not they have any primary relatives that may be affected or, or th that might benefit from earlier screening. Some of us know the importance of preventative screening, and I think there is a big push to be educated on what screenings a person needs to have and when, and then keeping up on those screenings. Could you tell us what preventative screenings a person should have in regards to colorectal cancer, what age they should begin them, and what do the screenings all entail? Sure. Um, colon cancer screening is something that is becoming more and more commonplace. We're seeing it, um, you know, you, you drive behind a bus and you get reminded that you need to get a colonoscopy. You'll see advertisements for that. Um, the, there are multiple different types of colon cancer screening that are available. Um, and again, the, the general recommendation is, is for that to begin at the age of 50. That may change depending upon an individual's personal or family history or the presence of any known genetic um, mutations that exist in their family. But for, for all intents and purposes, the average person should start their colon cancer screening at the age of 50. Um, colon cancer screening can, can have... Um, many different modalities. There are, there are many different options for colon cancer screening. The most important aspect for the patients and the listeners to understand is that colon cancer screening needs to get done. Um, as a general rule, if my, if my family members call me and say, hey, what should I do about getting colon cancer screening? I say, get a colonoscopy. And the reason that you get a colonoscopy is because a colonoscopy can not only be diagnostic, but can be therapeutic. And what I mean by that is that if you get, if you get a colonoscopy um, and they find a polyp, they can resect the polyp, they can identify what kind of polyp it is, and potentially it's curable. 
if you do any other type of colon cancer screening, generally speaking, and what I mean by that is fecal occult blood testing or coligard testing, most of the time, or CT colography, which are the other three, if you will, non-invasive um, colon cancer screening tests that are available, any positive result that comes on those requires a colonoscopy next. Um, and, and because I do what I do and I see patients with colon cancer, if somebody asks me what screening tests they should get for colon cancer, I'm going to tell them, get a colonoscopy. Are there other options available? Yes. If you're, if you have a contraindication to a colonoscopy, or if you have so much fear about getting a colonoscopy that you aren't going to do it, then certainly we would encourage you to get another option done. Um, but in the end, if any of those options are positive, a colonoscopy is going to be necessary. So for that reason, I always encourage patients, um, family members, anybody who will listen that at the age of 50, get a colonoscopy. Let's talk about staging. When someone has been told you have cancer, it seems like most of the time the next step is to identify what type of cancer it is and what stage it is. Could you elaborate on the staging for colorectal cancer and what that means for treatment and prognosis? Certainly. So the the kind of, if you will, three steps to to treating or to diagnosing colon cancer or evaluating a patient who, who has a new diagnosis of colon cancer. The first thing that I do when I see a patient is to assure the diagnosis. And what that means is to say, do we, do we truly see cancer? Do we see evidence of cancer um, and an invasive cancer? And typically that, that implies knowing that it's an invasive adenocarcinoma. That's the most common kind of colorectal cancer. After that, we discuss staging. Um, staging is a way of, of asking, where is this cancer? Um, grossly speaking, in the body, throughout the body, where do we see evidence that this cancer exists? And there's clinical staging, which means this is our best guess based upon CT scans and based upon clinical assessment. And then there's pathologic staging, which is, which is what do we see after the colon cancer has been resected? Um, staging, if a patient has had a colonoscopy and that colonoscopy has, an, has identified an invasive adenocarcinoma, most likely the next step will be the gastroenterologist telling the patient they should get CT scans. And the CT scans typically are done of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And that helps us to identify that the disease hasn't spread. Because frequently we can see the disease, both in colon and rectal cancer, spread to other organs. And if that happens, we're dealing with a stage 4 diagnosis. If we're not dealing with a stage 4 diagnosis and the CT scans are negative for any evidence of tumor spread, then we're dealing with a, a, a either stage one, stage two, or stage three colon cancer. And, and delineating the difference between those is dependent upon what we call the TNM system. The TNM system is the standard way that we stage most cancers. The T score in many cancers is a measure of size, which is how big or how large something is. Breast cancer, lung cancer, um, kidney cancer are all staged, the T-score is staged based on the size, how, how big or how small the tumor is. In colon cancer, it's not a measure of size, but a measure of depth of invasion. So frequently I'll, I'll draw on the, on the medical exam table paper um, a, a three concentric circles, one inside the other, 
And I'll tell patients if the if the tumor has invaded that first circle, it's a T1. If it's invaded that second circle, it's a T2. If it's invaded this third circle, it's a T3. If it's invaded all three layers and starting to grow into the outside tissue, it's a T4. And and that gives them a good visual representation of, of what the T-score means. And the T-score isn't the stage. The T-score is just a description of the depth of invasion. The N-score is a measure of lymph node status. And the lymph node status is best obtained at the time of surgery, um, although it can be ascertained as well at the time of scans. But most importantly, you're looking for the pathology invo pathologic involvement of lymph nodes at the time of surgery. And depending upon the number of lymph nodes involved, that'll give you your N score. Your M score is a measure of whether or not we see metastases. And that's obtained via that CT, those CT scans that are done at the time of your original colonoscopy. We put those variables together, the T score, the depth of invasion, the N score, the presence or absence of lymph nodes, and the M score, the presence or absence of any spread of metastatic disease, and we're able to stage the cancer for the patient. That stage, stage one, stage two, stage three, or stage four, assists us in determining what treatment options we should recommend. So everyone that's diagnosed with cancer, with colorectal cancer, is it a guarantee that they're going to need surgery? Um, it's not necessarily a guarantee, but it, that's the standard of care. Okay. Um, there's, there's some exceptions to that rule. Certainly we see patients who are diagnosed with colon cancer who are too frail. Um, or who have contraindications to undergoing surgery. Um, typically, when that happens, that means chemotherapy plus or minus radiation would be the main component of treatment. But as a general rule, if you have colon cancer and it has not metastasized, surgery will be necessary for treatment of your colorectal cancer. Okay. Uh, should I get a second opinion? I'm sure you've been asked this a time or two before. What do you tell patients when they when they ask for that? Sure, that's a very common question that I get asked on a regular basis. And, and my response to patients when they ask for a second opinion is to be very encouraging of that um, and, to, and to tell people that I work in a field of medicine that is inherently stressful um, and is almost traumatic to the patients and the family. So because of that, seeking a second opinion is, is something that should be encouraged. And if you see an oncologist or you see any physician who tries to dissuade you from seeking a second opinion, I think you should, that should raise a red flag. Um, oftentimes I will encourage patients to seek a second opinion or they will seek a second opinion with me. And I will tell them very honestly that the main benefit of them getting a second opinion is they're going to hear something twice. Um, the, most of the time when I, when I have patients go seek a second opinion or when they seek a second opinion from me, very, very little is very little changes from, in terms of the diagnosis or in terms of the staging or in terms of the treatment recommendations, but the value of hearing something twice, um, and the value of maybe hearing it from a slightly different perspective or hearing it, um, delivered in a different style can be of huge benefit to patients and the family members. So I, I never try to talk a patient out of seeking a second opinion, um, but I do let them know that very rarely will we see it actually change our management. Um, and, and I always encourage them to, to um, 
help me let them pick somebody to go get a second opinion with. You know, they, you don't want to go see somebody who's got less gray hair than me. You, you want to see somebody who's got more experience than I do. Or if I'm seeing somebody for a second opinion, um, I want to, I want to understand what their first opinion was and, and I want to understand, you know, why they're seeking that second opinion. Most of the time, it's just because of the inherent anxiety that comes with a diagnosis like colon cancer or rectal cancer. Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about research. What are some exciting things coming down the pipeline in terms of treatment or research? Is there anything you're excited about or looking forward to? As sure. We- yeah, there's there's um, the the needle continues to move in the positive direction in terms of treatment Good. of of colorectal cancer. The the most important aspect of ongoing ongoing research is continued. Um, improvements in terms of screening modalities, which we've discussed. And, and that's the thing that is going to continue to allow us to, to see more and more cures from colon cancer is finding it sooner. When you refer to research, most of the time you're referring to patients who have metastatic or non-curable disease. The, the things that we're most excited about from that perspective are um, immunotherapy, which to this point hasn't made huge inroads into the treatment of, of colorectal cancer that has metastasized, but we're still learning how to utilize those medications, and we're still learning how they best fit into our patients who have colorectal cancer. Another um, clinical trial that we were a part of um, through our Bergen location was non-operative management of rectal cancer which looked at patients who have a locally advanced rectal cancer with no evidence of metastatic disease. And the the standard treatment for that is chemotherapy and radiation, followed by surgery, followed by more chemotherapy. And what this clinical trial looked at was if we could avoid surgery. Um, And the reason that we looked at that was because we know that about 20 to 25% of patients who get the chemotherapy and radiation at the time of surgery, there'll be no evidence of disease. So what that clinical trial is looking to ask is if we can save patients the exposure to the surgery, the morbidity associated with that surgery. Um, And we're still waiting on the data from that, but um, I'm hopeful that that might be a practice changing clinical trial. And we are certainly very excited to be a part of that clinical trial. The other thing that is continuing to make more and more um, inroads in terms of how we treat our patients is 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 what you'll hear in the in the in the lay press is as personalized cancer care or 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 patient focused cancer care. And what that really focuses on are the molecular and genetic mutations that we see in patients um, and in patients' cancer, and tailoring the treatments to help best um, target those particular mutations or particular um, epigenetic findings. Um, As we continue to tailor our treatment for those mutations, we continue to see better and better outcomes. And, And the sky's the limit with those. And we certainly continue to be very excited about those as potential um, treatment options for our patients. How do you suggest that patients access resources for those who have been diagnosed? Where can they find the most reliable, up-to-date, truthful information? Sure. I'm smiling as you ask me that question <laughs> because the, the, 
the conclusion of every initial visit that I have with my patients, I conclude by introducing my team at Nebraska Cancer Specialists. I talk about my nurse practitioner and my medical assistant and my scheduler and my case manager. And I, I talk to them about all the financial and spiritual and psychiatric um, um, patient people who we have in our, in our, tri- in our clinic who help them. Um, after I get done introducing our team, I discuss with them what resources they're using. And, and most of the time, it's not just the patient I'm talking to, but it's the patient and the family members. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask them what somebody in this room has Googled colon cancer. Somebody in this room has gotten on the internet and, and started trying to research um, what they or their loved one is experiencing. And I tell them that Google's a good tool, but it's a dangerous tool. It's like a chainsaw. You can cut your arm off. Um, and, and then I'll lead them into some resources that I'd prefer that they use. Sure. Those resources are really twofold. The, the first resource is a, a website called cancer.net. Um, cancer.net is backed by the American Society of Clinical Oncologists. The other website is nccn.org, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Um, I go on to explain that cancer.net is a website that's intended for the lay public. It's a website that, um, you know, somebody with a high school education can understand, can get through. Um, it's not overwhelming. It helps to tell you what the patient's dealing with and, and what needs to be done about it. NCCN.org, on the other hand, is a website that I use every day. I've accessed it. I've accessed it twice this morning already. And it's um, early. <laughs> and it is early. And and uh, um, it's intended for the medical professional. It tells you the why we're doing what we're doing. It is very dense. Um, it can be very overwhelming to patients and family members. But it's a good, reputable website. And for the patient or family member who really wants to get to that next level understanding of what patients are dealing with, it's a good resource. As a general rule, if it doesn't come from one of those two websites, you probably don't need it. Now, with that said, I'd rather have somebody who's overeducated than undereducated. So I tell them, I don't care if you Google something. I don't care if you get on whatever your favorite search engine is and and look into this. But you need to understand that everything you're reading doesn't necessarily pertain to this situation. Um, And that's particularly true when patients have an early stage cancer. Because if you Google colon cancer, the first, you know, couple hundred websites that pop up are probably going to be discussing stage four colon cancer um, and the options for treatment of metastatic disease. But if you have stage one, stage two, or stage three colon cancer, most of that information probably will not pertain to you. Well, Dr. Hike, I know your patients love you. And even though they might not love the reason why they need to come see you, um, they become family to you. And most of them, I would assume, consider you family to them. Kelly, I, I appreciate you acknowledging that. And, and I tell people all the time, I have a very hard job. Um, I, I try to try to treat each and every one of my patients and I try to create a, a culture at Nebraska cancer specialists where before every interaction, before every decision point, I ask myself one simple question. And, and that is what would I, what would I tell them if this were my family member? How would I want this presented to them if this were my mother or if this were my father, my wife, my brother, my sister, whatever? Um, and and I found that if I practice medicine in that fashion, if I practice oncology in that fashion, 
I can keep getting up every morning and doing my job and my patients can have trust and can know that I empathize with their situation and that I can fight with fight them with this as long as as long as feasible as long as possible but they can also have comfort in knowing that if the time comes that maybe we should stop fighting maybe we should focus on comfort or focus on um end of life issues. I'll have those difficult conversations with them because those conversations are not something that you want to have, but sometimes they're necessary. And, and that's something that I introduce very early on to patients. And I don't do it because I want to scare them. I do it because I want them to have confidence that, that I'll be there for them, even if things don't go well. I love hearing that. Dr. Tim Hike, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you feel more in the know after spending time with us for this podcast. And if you are looking for a medical oncologist or need help finding a physician, go to NebraskaCancer.com and click Physicians. Also, we are thankful for the physicians at Nebraska Cancer Specialists who have spent the time to make this series happen. Parkville Media Production.